another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And it's our favorite time of the year. It's Halloween season. Uh, I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you, Todd, but I've been watching lots of scary movies. Uh, really enjoying the spooky season. I'm doing my uh, horror unit with my class. Having fun with that. Oh, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Do it every year. And so when we were talking about movies that we wanted to do for this Halloween season, one of the movies that we have stayed away from is John Carpenter's Halloween, because we've both talked about it many times, and we've talked about it on the show, about how there are some movies that people have talked so much about that we just don't really feel like we would have a whole lot to bring to the table as far as fresh, interesting content. So we just kind of stayed away from it. Yeah. But this year I thought that um, it might be interesting to take a look at Halloween 2018. This is a movie directed by and, and co-written by David Gordon Green and features the return of Jamie Lee Curtis to the franchise. Jamie Lee Curtis has appeared throughout the franchise. She was in one, obviously, and two. For part three, they straight away from the Michael Myers storyline and we've done that movie and it it's an interesting movie in its own right but kind of an outlier in the series and then 4, 5, and 6 kind of took a whole different angle on the Michael Myers story and focused on Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character's daughter and it turned out like Michael Myers was the result of some evil cult that like made all of this happen and turned him into what he is. And then they ignored all those to go back to H2O, Halloween H2O, 20 years after the original, and Jamie Lee Curtis returned. They ignored 4, 5, and 6 in the timeline there. And then she appeared in the next installment, briefly, where she was killed off. And then there were the remakes, the Rob Zombie remakes. And then 40 years later, in 2018, we get Halloween, which was intended initially to be a whole new reboot on the Michael Myers character, new mythology, all that kind of stuff. It was not intended to be a sequel. But eventually... The filmmakers announced that it would, in fact, be a direct sequel to the original movie, ignoring all of the timelines from the rest of the franchise, just a direct <laughs> sequel to number one. Um, and it came out, and I went and saw it in the theater with my dad, as I often do with these types of movies. Um, and we both really, really liked it. And so I recommended it for today, and I hadn't seen it since then when it came out in the theater. And so I watched it again yesterday, and I had, as much as I remembered liking it, I had really kind of forgotten exactly how much I liked it. I think this is a great movie and a mm. great sequel to the original John Carpenter's Halloween. What's your story with this movie, Todd? Anything? I'm ashamed to admit that this thing kind of flew right by my radar. I think I stopped paying attention to the Halloween franchise after the first few. I never was a huge Michael Myers fan for whatever reason. I was so focused on Freddy. I wasn't even a Jason fan, really. So I, I was really just kind of a one, one-note one guy <laughs> interested in Freddy more than anything else. So I obsessed over the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And to me, you know, the Michael Myers movies had always been, well, he's just another killer. In fact, when I was younger and I watched the movies, I thought that he was just kind of blah. A guy comes around and he, he's wearing a white mask and he kills people like, where's the hook? Where's the the creative, wacky kills that you get in the Jason movies? Where's the dream and supernatural stuff that you get in the Freddy movies, you know? It's not a possessed doll like in the Chucky movie. So, like, this had always seemed really kind of boring to me in a concept. I guess I'm, I was, I'm really like the high concept in the supernatural. However, <laughs> as an adult, you know, going back and watching the original Halloween, and I, which I have several times as an adult, in fact, after we watched this movie, I was was so struck by what I remembered as being so many parallels to the original mm -hmm. that I had to go back and watch the original just to test myself. And uh, I just loved that experience. It's, it's, it is actually a very different, and I'm talking about the original. The original is a very different kind of movie mm -hmm. from these others. You know, it came before most of them, but it's, it has its own style and its flair. It really takes its time. And I find the character of Michael Myers as an adult maybe to be creepier than any of those other guys, to be honest. Uh -huh. And so 
coming into this movie, uh, I'm just going to throw it out there just like you did. I thought this was fantastic as well. I, I It almost did no wrong as far as I'm concerned. It literally picked up right after the first one. I mean, years later, but as though uh-huh. nothing else happened uh, in what we had seen in the sequels past. It, I thought, took a very realistic notion and idea on... What would happen if you're the final girl, right? Uh Jamie Lee Curtis's character from the original movie, and thank God she reprised it, but what a great concept. Like, she was so traumatized by that experience that she becomes this woman who's basically out in the woods, armed herself with all kinds of guns, trains herself in target practice like every day. She has a daughter and she trains her too. She's got a house that's like full of alarms and booby traps and things. And her whole life is just basically waiting for him to come back. (laughs) Uh And when you see, when you go back and you see the original, like I did afterwards, you understand why. I mean, it really works. She was traumatized in the original. Mm -hmm. I mean, the original ends with her just sobbing in tears. Yeah. Just broken. And the, he was pretty relentless in the original. I mean, it all fits so well. It was like, duh. You know, I watched that and I thought, yeah, David was a David McBride who co-wrote the movie along with some input from John Carpenter and a couple other people. Blumhouse, I think it was uh, Jason Blum, right, was the one who kind of kind of pushed this ahead uh, at, through its various incarnations to try to get this going. And I just feel like they watched the original movie. And with fresh eyes and was like, well, yeah, all right, we're going to pick up right where this left off. This woman's traumatized at the end of this movie. So here we are years later. She's still traumatized. <laughs> right. And and he ends up locked up again. And so in many ways, the movie almost parallels it in so many ways. I kind of think of it a little bit like Star Wars The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. One of the things that made that movie really successful is that it kind of, in a way, the plot hit all of the same beats that the original did mm-hmm. but it did it in an original way so that you had the fan service there and everybody who was expecting a star wars movie like they remembered a star wars movie that's exactly what they got almost to a fault but there was enough original story enough interesting characters in there to be a completely separate movie and that's exactly how i felt about this one uh it, it hit so many of the same beats almost followed a, a very similar if not you could argue almost the same plot as the original in many ways. However, it had enough little twists in it and so much interesting, and like I said, I thought very original and realistic take on the characters from the first movie that I was just gripped. I was gripped through the whole thing. Yeah, and you said, thank God, Jamie Lee Curtis decided to reprise her role. I agree entirely. I think it was Halloween Resurrection that they asked her to be a part of, and she said, I will do it, but I want you to kill me off in the first scene because I, <laughs> I'm I'm done. I'm done with this character. And so they did, and, and it was... First of all, Halloween Resurrection is a terrible movie. Coincidentally enough, there was a marathon of the Halloween movies on yesterday, and so I watched four, five, and six <laughs> back to back. Oh, my God. You did your research this time. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And and none of those movies are particularly good. I mean, there's some things going on there, but Halloween Resurrection is is bad. Like, they tried to do, like, a Michael Myers reality show type thing, and yeah. it was so stupid. But Laurie Strode, her character, did appear uh, in the beginning, but she was killed off. And Jamie Lee Curtis had sworn that she was not going to come back. But apparently Jake Gyllenhaal is a family friend, a close family friend, and somehow he talked her into doing it, and she did, and she came back. And she plays this role so well, I think. Mm. It's subtle, it's nuanced, it's believable. You believe that this is a woman in trauma as much as she's a badass, because she totally is. She's like freaking Rambo, you know? Like, she's got this whole arsenal of weapons, and she's got all these booby traps, she's got all this cool stuff. But she's also vulnerable. As strong as she is, there is a vulnerability, too. And, And you can see that in her performance. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic, period. And if I remember correctly, when we talked to Bill Oberst Jr. on the show, 
after we were done talking to him and we had finished the episode, we stopped recording and we continued to just kind of talk to him and pick his brain for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he had worked with Jamie Lee Curtis in the past. And I asked him, is she as cool in person as she seems to be? And he said, she's even cooler. Like, (laughs) (laughs) uh, so it's amazing that she came back um, and and she's great in it. The, The other thing that I wanted to say was you had talked about finding Michael Myers kind of boring initially. What always has fascinated me about the character of Michael Myers is that his motivation is just that he's evil. That's it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's all anybody can figure out. Yeah, he's yeah. just evil. He's just evil incarnate. He is an almost unstoppable killing machine. And I don't know, you know, yeah, it doesn't have that intrigue maybe that Freddy has, um, but uh, there's there's something really dark and scary about just simply an evil force, and I think that that plays in this movie really well, especially because even though we never get a full shot of him, a full face shot, we see him a lot in this movie without the mask, Mm. before he gets it back and he's an old man in this movie he's supposed to be 61 years old the character is supposed to be 61 years old the guy who played him who's played him before actually he was portrayed by more than one person in this movie but the main guy is 70 in real life and he looks elderly but i still believed him as a really frightening and powerful force. Uh, he just he was scary in this movie. <laughs> you know, he's a bit of an enigma, right? And maybe that is what I'm really latching onto now as an adult as I'm able to just digest and absorb these movies a little bit better. The thing is, I thought they did really well in this film. Like you said is that we are constantly reminded that he's a person right? Mm-hmm. Part of what is so chilling about him is that he just seems like this faceless blank slate. The white mask th- that you don't see the eyes, there's practically no reaction. I mean, he just moves. He just moves and does his thing. Oddly enough, he can get shot or stabbed or whatever, and there is a reaction, right? It, it clearly right. hurts him, but you don't hear a shout. Right. <laughs> you don't see blood. He seems almost supernatural, except, especially in this movie, you get constant reminders that he is a person. So where is his vulnerability? Like, nobody really knows, right? Mm-hmm. He seems to be able to just move in the shadows and almost effortlessly, almost as though there's an aura of protection around him. Just walk away as another character who could take him out is coming into the scene. Right. That happens several times where it just almost seems to be a matter of coincidence that people just miss him, that he's not ducking and hiding. He's just able to be there and able to not be there, able to just amble towards you. (laughs) And he's Mm -hmm. still going to get you. So... Yet, like you said, in the in the very beginning of the film, and the and the movie starts off with these two characters, Aaron and Dana, who are going to see him in the mental hospital. They're doing a podcast, I guess, which is very up to date, right? <laughs> so lame. Aside from the fact that they're lame podcasters. <laughs> Loser podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> but <they're, laughs> nobody's other podcasts are not quite as lame as ours, where they actually do like, <laughs> investigative research and like break right. stories and stuff. And that's kind of a thing, right? where people have actually done these investigative podcasts and and followed stories like journalists. And it's a great format for that. Not for the shit we do. But um, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, uh, so that's kind of cool. And they go to visit the hospital and they meet up with Dr. Sartain, who is, you know, he's the Loomis character. And I was like, oh, my gosh, of course, we're going to get here's Michael in the hospital again. Here's a doctor who's obsessed with him again, who says basically the same things. Michael has been my life's obsession. I've examined every single case file written on him. I was a student of Dr. Loomis before he passed away. And then I lobbied the University of Illinois to be assigned to Michael myself. Any progress? He's been seen by over 50 clinical psychiatrists, and with each, many different opinions. Dr. Loomis was the only one to see him in the wild. 
And he concluded he was nothing more than pure evil. Like you said, we never see his face, but he is in this odd, extreme isolation where he's just chained to the ground in the middle of a yard, well spaced out, I should say socially distanced, (laughs) (laughs) to the extreme from a number of other inmates in this huge yard with a big line drawn around him like, here's the line to where he, you know, the chain stops him. (laughs) And they're trying to talk to him. I mean, again, he said the guy has not talked in 61 years. Another thing that's spooky about this guy, right? He doesn't quip. He doesn't say a word. Mm -hmm. And they just approach him from behind. And again, it's like, oh, you can kind of see the tip of his nose. You can kind of see the side of his face. But we're never going to get that full on. And um, this reporter, Aaron, has this mask uh, in his bag that he got. And he holds it out and says, Michael, look at the mask. Like, look at the mask. Is this? They're just trying to incite him. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to the credits. He barely, barely kind of glances, not even over his shoulder, just to the side a little bit. But then it's 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 weird and i'm not really sure what to make of this but um all of the other patients and the guard dog start to mm. freak out almost as though michael ha- is <sighs> i don't know how to say it without it sounding super cheesy it doesn't come off as super cheesy in the movie but almost as though the excitement or or something that michael feels at being close to the mask mm. the other patients can sense it and it agitates them and they all start to freak out and it doesn't make a lot of logical sense but it makes for a very exciting intense opening scene and then like you said you do get the traditional credits which is another thing that i love about this movie there are so many throwbacks the 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 font and color of the credits is exactly the same as the first movie it's the original score with just a few tweaks and modernizations the same imagery of you know the camera coming in on a jack-o'-lantern but in this case the jack-o'-lantern is rotted but then it comes back uh (laughs) yeah de-rots um slowly the zombie (laughs) jack-o'-lantern for (laughs) for for those of us who are fans of the franchise and especially the first movie it's so nostalgic and it it anchors it so firmly in the world of the original yeah it's fantastic yeah it's it's so good It is really exciting, yeah. And just real quick, something just came to me when you were talking about the excitement of the mask. I wonder, maybe I'm thinking too deeply about this, but, you know, there is kind of a phenomenon lately. (laughs) Maybe you've heard of it, of people being nasty online. Yeah. You know, one thing that seems to be a problem nowadays is that people are able to mask themselves so well. And and we used to think, well, it's because you could be anonymous online and you don't have to put your real name. And now we've kind of learned that doesn't matter. Like, right. you can put your real name out there and you can still somehow there's this inclination in people to just be raw and say things they would never say to you in person face to face mm-hmm. uh, but be kind behind sort of the mask of the computer screen people are empowered by that and it's interesting that michael myers seems to need that mask mm-hmm. just like you said in the beginning like he's they, they're holding a mask out and it's almost like this mask is so significant and, and he's he, he does maybe kind of want it and everybody else kind of around him knows it after he breaks out one of the first things he does is go get his mask yep You know, so I do wonder if there is a little bit of that, if we're going to kind of equate this with the modern day and kind of what's going on. There's a lot of modern day in this movie with cell phones and texting and um, Mm -hmm. which is also kind of nice because it's a nice contrast, actually, to Jamie Lee Curtis's character who has just turned away from everything, kind of disconnected herself from society. Right. Uh, Here's Michael Myers, evil personified, coming relentlessly after people. And how many of us do maybe turn into a different person or have these sort of impulses that are more free when we are behind the mask of a, of a computer screen, you know? Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, the mask definitely seems to have major significance. And, and we should say that, supposedly, this is the original mask from 40 years ago. Like, the guy, like, got it from the district attorney or something. I don't know, lame, but mm-hmm. it's the original <laughs> mask. And it looks great, you know, it's the traditional design, but it's very aged. Um, it, it looks fantastic. These two reporters, when they can't get any reaction out of Michael, they think, well, let's go talk to Laurie Strode, his victim, and see if perhaps maybe one monster has created another. Um, and 
that's kind of a, a major motif in the movie is the impact that these two characters have had on one another. Um, the doctor at some point says that both of them kind of only live for the other. Jamie Lee Curtis's entire life is devoted to protecting herself and her family and, and she wants to kill Michael. That's what she is driven by. And Michael is driven solely by his desire to kill her, presumably because she's kind of the only one that got away, I guess. Mm, I guess. The movie does uh, remove the whole plot line of them being brother and sister, which was introduced in part two, which I think was smart. I mean, I think it was smart to just completely divorce itself from all of the mythology established yeah. from part two on. It's just, it's just unnecessary to have that relationship. It didn't bother me in the original franchise, but I think it's fine that they left it alone here. Wasn't it her brother who, like, cold-blooded murdered all those teenagers? No. That's just a bit that some people made up to make him feel better, I think. I mean, that is scary to have a bunch of your friends get butchered by some random crazy person. Is it, though? Because, all things considered, there's a lot worse stuff that's happening today, and, like, I mean, what, a couple people getting killed by one guy with a knife is not that big of a deal. But they go to her house, and like you said, it's like Fort Knox, and she only opens the gate when they offer her money. Uh, they offer her $3,000, and they go in, and Dana's kind of interviewing her and saying, we wanted to talk to you to see, you know, to hear more of your story. She says, you know, we've done this before. We've talked about cold cases and other crimes and we've been able to unearth new insights and Lori just looks at her and says there's nothing to learn there are no new insights they bait her a little bit you know they talk about her history they say that she had two failed marriages that she has a rocky relationship with her daughter and her granddaughter the state took away her daughter at age 12 and she never got custody back she still has a relationship with her daughter but it's strained and they want to tr her to try to talk to Michael, to try to get him to talk. They're so naive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's stupid. I mean, it, it's it's really stupid. I mean, it, sure, you know, it would be great for their podcast. You know, uh -huh. like that'd be fantastic if they could really get it to happen. But it also completely ignores her safety and sanity, and you know, it, it's exploitive. Yeah. But she flat out rejects it and, and she only talks to them for a few minutes and then makes them go away. And then that's when we're introduced to her daughter, Karen, who's played by Judy Greer, who is an actress who you have seen in every movie in the last 10 years. Um, <laughs> she always plays second fiddle, always. I think that she's a great actress. I love her in this movie. Um, and she has a daughter. Allison, played by a newcomer, Andy Matichek. Um, the role of Allison was kind of uh, a lot of young, up-and-coming actresses were vying for this role, but they decided to go with a relative unknown, as they had with Jamie Lee Curtis in the original. And Allison kind of takes on Jamie Lee Curtis's role from the first movie. She's the young teenage girl. There are so many parallels, like you said, like after a little bit of interaction with the family, Allison leaves with her friends and they're walking to school down the street in Haddonfield, in suburbia, with all of the Halloween decorations out. I mean, it's, it's all but identical to the scene of Laurie walking with her friends in the early scenes of the movie. And and then later you see Allison at school in a classroom and she turns and looks out the window and her grandmother, Jamie Lee Curtis, is standing there just as Michael Myers was standing there when Jamie Lee Curtis was looking out that same window 40 years ago. Um, and it's fan service, but it works. Like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel cheesy or corny. It feels like homage and it's exciting and fun. Well, and it serves the theme too, that there's a part of each that is the other, right? I mean, the the monster has perhaps created the monster. So Jamie Lee Curtis is like Michael Myers in a way, in that she's creeping out there, that she's a little obsessive, you know, can't get past this one note, you know, that she has now. So I mean, yeah, just kind of putting her in the place of him visually 
hits that home. One thing that struck me, especially as I went back and watched the original, talking about how this franchise is, or at least the first movie or so, was really quite unique, and that is how much of suburbia we really get. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. Nightmare on Elm Street takes place in suburbia, too. However, uh-huh. these streets are just kind of the quiet, empty, uh, suburban streets outside any town. You know, it's just, I mean, like right. where you and I, Craig, spent a lot of time. Yeah, it, small town USA. That's it. And as you watch it and you realize you're watching a horror movie, you realize how creepy this could, in fact, be. Because if you travel around to Europe and to a lot of other countries, this same sort of town or the same sort of streets would be filled with people. Like, people would be out in the yard. People would be using the sidewalks. Mm-hmm. And here, it's quite empty. And, and, it, and it is in the first movie, and it is in this as well. Like, of course, they're walking home from school or they're walking to school because school happens to be nearby. But they're pretty much the only people on the street. Mm-hmm. And so there are moments where, in the original, Michael Myers just sort of is there, and then he's not there. And middle of the day, mm-hmm. you still feel like something could go down here, and probably even nobody would notice. Right. Which is a bit of the tragedy of the suburbs as well, you know. But that, like you just said, that has been recreated in this movie, too. And a lot of that really hasn't changed in the last... <laughs> is right. since that time right so it's, yeah it's really eerie and actually in that way <laughs> yeah it still works i mean it, mm-hmm. you're right as much as things have changed many things haven't you know I, I live in a small town just like that really probably smaller really but you know my street is a very sleepy street yeah there's kids out playing sometimes and you see people walking their dogs by but it's just I don't know. It, it, it feels very rooted in reality in that way. Mm-hmm. Allison and Lori uh, have a talk where Allison basically says to Lori, look, you've let this consume your whole life. You've just got to let it go. And obviously that's very naive. Allison, by the end of the movie, might understand why Lori is unable to let all of this go at mm. this point. <laughs> but they talk about um, Lori's relationship with Allison's mom, Karen, and how it's strained and, and why she was taken away. All this hiding, all this preparation, it was for nothing. I mean, it took priority over your family. It cost you your family. If the way I raised your mother means that she hates me, but that she's prepared for the horrors of this world, then I can live with that. It's so human and and real. You know, this Mm. her kid was taken away from her because she is an extremist. Uh, You know, I guess the state or whatever felt that teaching her 12-year-old daughter to shoot guns and set booby traps and stuff was inappropriate. But she was doing it out of love and protection as much as it clearly pains her because she tears up when the interviewers ask her about her daughter it clearly pains her that their relationship is strained she doesn't regret it she would do it again it's interesting and it pays off in an excellent way (laughs) it really does and let me just point out again you know after watching the first movie to be honest this is a character in need of redemption if you go back and watch the movie, as much as she's the final girl, and in, in so many horror movies, the final girl is sort of the badass, or at least is the one that is able to just rise a little bit above everybody else and be just slightly smarter or just more tenacious to get through it, and so we really respect them. You go back and watch that original, and it's it's a miracle she lived through it. Yes, yes. <laughs> she yes. makes all the wrong moves. You know, she does the cliche go upstairs when she's supposed to go outside. She freaking locks the kids in one room while she goes and hides in a closet in another room. Uh-huh. Leaving the kids <laughs> to, to, to peril and putting herself in a situation where she has no control. And she's like this through the entire movie. So you can see not only... What, did she leave that film traumatized? But probably looking back on the situation, she's probably thinking the same thing. I was lucky to get out of there. Yeah. I'm not going to make that same mistake again. And so, again, like she's perfectly set up for this great character arc. And you really love her in this movie because of it, right? Right. Even though she's tortured and <laughs> probably not terribly pleasant to be around. like No, <laughs> no fun. <laughs> there's a family, a family celebration dinner with Allison and her 
parents and her boyfriend Cameron they're celebrating the fact that Allison got into the National Honor Society or something Allison is mad at her mom because she thinks that her mom intentionally didn't invite her grandmother but she did Um, and Lori Lori does show up and what they don't know is that this happens to be Halloween 40 years to the day that all of the stuff from the original movie went down. And also, coincidentally, this is also the day that Michael is going to be transferred to a different facility. Uh, he's not going to be studied anymore. He's just going to be locked away forever. <laughs> and Lori has gone to the the place where he was, and she she watches them bring out the prisoners, including Michael. And she's sitting there with a gun as though she intends to try to shoot him as he's being transferred, but she can't bring up the nerve to do it. And when she gets to the dinner, she's already been drinking and she grabs a glass of wine off the table and starts drinking. And Karen's mad at her and says, you know, you promised you wouldn't drink and whatnot. And Lori sits down and really just kind of breaks down and starts weeping and says, I saw him. I wanted to kill him, but I didn't know what to do. And like I said, as much of a badass as she is, she is still fragile in some ways like as much as she wanted to as long as she's been waiting for this date when presented with this opportunity though it wasn't a good opportunity who how she would have gotten by the guards or any other number of factors you know it probably wouldn't have worked out but she couldn't get herself to do it in that moment Um, and she ends up getting and running out and allison follows her but Lori just walks away and that's when Karen, Allison's mom, tells her the story of her growing up, and we see it in flashback. All of the weapons training, tactical training, all that stuff, and it's kind of a cool flashback section. But then we get to, we we cut immediately to this father and son in a car having an interesting conversation where the son is talking about how he really likes going hunting with his dad, but he really wishes they could do it on the weekend because he's having to miss his dance class. Um, and, <laughs> I and I, I, I did too. And I'm pretty sure that I read that uh, David Gordon Green, the director was involved in dance it, when he was <laughs> young. And so this was kind of a little personal homage for him. But they come across the bus that had been transferring Michael and other inmates is crashed along the side of the road. And these inmates are just very creepily walking around in the dark in the middle of the road. And the dad gets out to go check to see what's going on. And the kid calls the cops, but he doesn't know exactly where they are. So he gets out with his gun because they were going hunting a, a rifle. He finds a cop who appears to be dead, but is not really. And the cop tells him just to run. But instead, he goes to look for his dad, and he gets on the bus, and the doctor, who had been escorting Michael, is still on the bus, and he pops up unexpectedly and says, don't shoot, but he frightens the kid, and the kid shoots him. So the kid runs back to the car, hoping to get help, and Michael kills him. And this is a young kid, and I'm not surprised that the movie went here. Um, mm. I'm, I'm almost a little bit glad that it did, because... One of the things that I do like about Michael in this movie is that he is brutal, but it seems that he's not just indiscriminately killing people. Mm. He's just kind of killing the people that are in the way. You yeah. know, like there, there's one scene, there was one kill that I was, I really didn't understand. We'll get there in a second. But for the most part, it's just kind of people who get in his way to getting to uh, Lori. And the other thing that I like about this movie is that the kills are brutal and very violent and graphic sometimes, but also economical. Rob Zombie's remakes are very interesting in their own right, and I liked them when they came out. But comparing them to this movie, the Michael and Rob Zombie's movies is... It's it's almost as though he takes pleasure in killing people and mm. it the 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 kill scenes are so drawn out like he beats poor Daniel Harris to within an inch of her life over a long period of time i mean yeah. it's it's just masochistic it's horrible in this yes it's very violent and it's very brutal but it's also economical like he's just going to kill you and it's he's not going to take his time about it like yeah it, and then he's, he's gonna just going to do it <laughs> and then he's going to walk away. Yeah. It's... And I guess that 
the guy who played him actually talked to some killers about their methods and the writer director thought about it too and thought you know these these true killers they're just they're getting the job done they're not messing around they're not playing with you they're just getting the job done and i like that about him in this movie so he kills this kid but it's quick and then he's got a car and like you said, that's when he goes to get his mask. So we get back to Aaron and Dana, the two reporters, and they, with the mask in the trunk of their car, pull into a gas station. Now, I really wasn't, I kind of expected us to see Aaron and Dana for more of the movie. I thought they might be getting in the way. I thought they might be egging things on. I thought the movie was going to take a little bit of that turn. But actually, no, Michael just goes and kills them and takes the mask. There is a terrifying scene in the bathroom of Mm -hmm. this rest stop where Dana has gone in there to use the toilet. And as she's in there, she sees these feet come in and he goes and opens one stall, opens the next stall, opens the next, finally gets to her. I don't remember exactly how it all went down, but I just remember being extremely uncomfortable. She does put up quite a fight. She's on the floor. He's pulling her out. But yeah, this is probably, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is might be the most brutal kill scene in the movie. Well, yeah, I mean, it is one. Aaron intervenes um, as she's being attacked, and Michael oh. brutally kills him by smashing his head against every hard surface Everything in the bathroom. In the whole bathroom. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, then once he is incapacitated, but not yet dead, so he gets to see Dana be murdered also. He he gets a hold of her, and he picks her up by the neck and, and snaps her neck. And this happens uh, several times when Michael is strangling somebody. He's strangling them for a few seconds, but then their neck breaks, and they're just dead. Uh, and I felt like that was realistic too. You know, if somebody's mm. holding you up by your neck and you're struggling, chances are your neck might break <laughs> yeah, before point. before you succumb to suffocation. But yeah, that's brutal. But then he gets the mask and <sighs> we use the word iconic so much. I feel like we overuse it, but it, it feels iconic when he reaches into their car and pulls out the mask and puts it on in broad daylight with tons of people around. And not only has he killed those two, but he also killed everybody else in the gas, like all of the yeah. employees in the gas station. Oh, and that's how uh, Michael kind of signaled to her that she was next, is he dropped some bloody teeth right down on the ground right, right under the stall there. Right, because he had ripped a guy's jaw completely out and apparently ripped his teeth out too. Yeah. Uh, it's on the news that he's escaped and Lori hears it. We see that she has a secret basement under her kitchen island, which is important later. She goes, uh, Lori goes and warns Karen. She scares Karen in her own home. She says, look, he, he's out. We have to find him. We have to kill him. Karen and her husband, who's a nice guy. I never wrote his name down, but he's, you know, this nice kind of funny dad or whatever. But they kick her out. And so she goes to the crime scene where we're introduced to uh, Captain Hawkins, who was one of the officers in the original film. And the actor reprises his role. And Hawkins sees her there and... Hawkins knows, because he's dealt with Michael before, how serious this is. But then we get trick-or-treaters, and I love it. You know, it's nighttime, there's trick-or-treaters. Three of them are wearing the silver shamrock masks from part three. Oh, that was um, so cool an- to see that go right by. <laughs> but it was, it was unmistakable. <laughs> yeah. There's also an homage to part two. One of the little kids is dressed as a kid from the 80s holding a big boombox up to his ears, and Michael bumps into him, as he did with somebody holding a big boombox up to his head in part two even though Mm. they ignored all of the backstory there are homages to every movie in in the franchise and you can read about them on imdb but um like i said he's just out there amongst everybody and he goes into just casually you know like he just walks (laughs) through this town that's what i'm casually well and the shot is great because it's one of these geek shots where it's all one take Uh uh-huh it's one very very long take following him around and it's so cool to see that because well 
well, of course it's Halloween, so a guy walking around with a big mask on, even with a knife in his hand, isn't going to, you know, raise too much, too many waves. Right. But just to kind of like for a moment, just be in his head and see his modus operandi, where he just goes down the street, looks at the trick or treaters, bumps into one, turns down, walks into the shed, picks up a hammer, casually walks into this house where there's a woman in the kitchen, uh, and then just walks into the kitchen, and we don't see it, which I actually really liked. But she kind of goes off frame for a second and he follows her there and he just, you can hear it and your imagination's probably worse, mm-hmm. beats her to death with a hammer and then the camera goes in, we see the aftermath and we follow him with a hammer, he goes out, he goes to a different house. I mean, it's like, it's really cool actually for a moment in this movie to be with him again, kind of like we were with him in the in the beginning of the first movie, right? The opening scene. Right, right. Well, after he kills that woman and gets her big knife, by the way, everybody in this town has enormous kitchen knives. I don't know <laughs> no. if they're like butchering hogs. <laughs> they have giant whatever. onions. That's what it is. <laughs> After he kills that woman and he gets the knife, he walks through the house and you hear a baby crying. And mm. he walks up to the bassinet, kind of, but then he just turns and walks away and he doesn't kill the baby. And I remember when the movie came out that that was kind of a point of discussion for fans. Like, why didn't he? You know, if he's just pure evil, why wouldn't he kill the baby? But I think, for me, it makes sense because there's no reason to. He doesn't need to. Like I said before, it's kind of like he's just killing the people who are in his way. And the baby's Mm. not in his way. True. You know, so he just walks away and leaves it. But that leads to the next kill where he walks up to this lady's house and she's on the phone and she's talking to somebody named Sally. And she's like, oh my gosh, I didn't hear. Well, I'll make sure to keep my doors locked. So somebody has called her about Michael escaping. But I don't know who this woman is supposed to be, and he kills her, and this is the only kill that I didn't understand his motivation for. Because as far as I could tell, she wasn't in the way, and he didn't get anything from her. Yeah. So I don't know if that character was supposed to be somebody that I should know who she is. I felt like they were hitting us over the head with her keep saying, oh, yes, Sally, I'll be very careful, Sally. Like... Mm. I felt like there was supposed to be some connection was there. Was it another but... homage to one of the other movies? If so, I didn't read about it. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Then we go to the Halloween dance where Allison and Cameron are dressed as Bonnie and Clyde, but like gender swapped. It's kind of cute. And there's silly high school business with them. She gets a phone call from her friend Vicky, who is babysitting, which is, you know, mm. classic callback to the original. <laughs> but she's she's babysitting this kid named Julian, this little boy, and he is so funny. Like, Yeah, yeah he is a smart <laughs> Ass little kid. (laughs) He is hilarious. I heard you telling your friends to come over here and you're going to smoke some weed. No, no. That Alakazam? Julian, I'm talking about like a, you know, like a magic trick, like abracadabra. I know you're talking about smoking weed. Don't lie to me. That's against the rules. I'm telling my mom. Well, I'm going to tell your mom about your browser history. You better not. You can get me in trouble, I can get you in trouble. I'm... You used to be my favorite, but now you're like my 10th favorite boy that I nanny. And I babysit some fucking loser kids. If I had some other kind of babysitter, she'd be reading me a story. I wouldn't be up clipping my nasty ass toenails. Uh-huh. Go to bed. You used to be cool. We used to be friends, but now... Like, give this kid his own movie. He was so funny. <laughs> but when she gets off the phone, Allison sees her boyfriend kiss another girl. In in the five seconds that she's been away from him, he has gotten shit-faced drunk. <laughs> he, Good point. He kisses another girl, and he's a dick about it, and her phone rings, and it's her grandmother, but he grabs the phone from her and throws it in a big punch bowl full of pudding? Like, <laughs> why was there a big punch bowl full of pudding? So many questions. <laughs> but she's without her phone now. And th- this is a neat way of dealing with the whole cell phone issue, right? Because actually her phone's been ringing and uh, Lori has been trying to text her and, and call her. Mm. And a couple times she ignored it. Once she didn't see it, her phone's ringing and he happens to be there to grab her and throw in her pudding. It's a neat way of dealing with the whole cell phone issue. Like, why right, are why right. Isn't everybody informed by now that there's this killer on the loose, especially the people at the high school dance, right? Right. Then we go back to Vicky and her boyfriend Dave shows up and they start making out or whatever, but they hear a noise upstairs and Julian comes running downstairs saying that he saw somebody standing in the hall watching him. 
and uh, Vicky's like, okay, I'll go check it out. And Julian's like, send Dave first. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> but Vicky goes in the room to check it out and she messes with him like, oh, sir, I need you to leave. But then she pops out and scares him like there's nobody in there. She puts him back to bed and they have a sweet little moment. And he says, can you close the closet? And she goes to close the closet, but it's like there's something in the way. And when she opens the door to see what's in the way, there's Michael, and he slashes her, and Julian goes, oh, shit, and gets and up runs and runs out. <laughs> <laughs> he is not a hero. He is a smart no. guy, Julian. <laughs> he, he, and he runs down, and he, he gets to Dave, and he's like, Dave, you gotta, the, the, if you try to help her, you'll die. And then he just runs away. <laughs> smart kid. I, I have to admit, I wasn't, seeing, uh, I wasn't seeing her death coming either. I mean, it shouldn't surprise me. It was sad, because she was, was pretty really and nice. Sad. Yeah. And uh, we don't. He kills Dave off screen. We see Dave's body later. Um, but there's a call. I, I guess probably Julian ran to a neighbor's or something. And so there's a call for a domestic disturbance. And both Hawkins and Lori hear it because Lori has a police scanner in her car and she's been driving around looking for Michael too. So they both show up there. Hawkins goes inside and finds Vicky's body draped in a sheet, a ghost sheet. Lori sees Michael in one of the bedroom windows and it appears that he sees her too and she aims her gun and fires and it looks like she hits him in the head but as it turns out what she had seen was really just a reflection in the mirror so um hawkins is pursuing from inside Lori's pursuing from outside michael comes out and like you said is just kind of ambling along not running or anything um and Lori gets a shot and 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 shoots him like yeah. gets him i think in the shoulder but then somehow he disappears this is the thing I don't understand about this character. I guess it's part of the enigma, but he—I don't—I don't—I haven't seen all the sequels, Craig. I think I've seen the first two, but this guy can just get shot, he can get stabbed, all this stuff uh, fall from a window, and then he's gone. What's the deal? <laughs> well, are, are we this, supposed to think this... he's supernatural in a way, or is that just supposed to be ambiguous? Four, five, and six set it up that he was supernatural, but the earlier ones did not. He's just a guy, and I think it's just because he's such a big guy and because he's crazy that these injuries, they are. I mean, he is injured, and later, Lori shoots off some of his fingers, and they're gone, you know, like, yeah. and he's bleeding and, and in pain. I think he's just supposed to be very strong. It's not particularly realistic, but right. but I, I don't think that he's supposed to be supernatural. I think he's just supposed to be a guy. But he gets away again, and Spartan, the doctor, shows up on scene, and Hawkins introduces him to her, <laughs> and she says, oh, so you're the new Loomis, <laughs> which is what the audience is saying, too. <laughs> she says uh, what we're all thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. And she tells him, I pray every night that he would escape. And Hawkins, I think, says, why would you do that? And she says, so I can kill him. And she turns and walks away. Allison is walking. I th I'm not sure where she's going. I think that she's going to the house where Vicky was. Um, but she's walking with Oscar, who is Cameron's goofy friend. The, the cops and Lori show up at Karen's house and get her and the husband. And Karen's freaking out because she can't get Allison on her phone because Allison doesn't have her phone. Oscar makes a move on Allison which she totally rejects, and she walks away. And he's drunk and sitting in the backyard of this house, and he turns around, and he sees Michael standing behind him. He thinks it's the owner of the house, so he's just talking to him kind of casually. And then he gets killed, but in a pretty brutal way. He ends up getting stabbed, but also impaled through the head on the top of a big spiky fence that mm. he's hanging from and Allison hears him screaming for help so she runs back and she he's already dead but she and Michael see each other so she runs and screams and starts beating on doors and eventually the police do arrive and they get her and Hawkins says we're going to take you to your mom and Karen and Lori and her and Karen's husband are all at Lori's house and Lori says He's waited for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Come on, Michael. And then this next scene, Hawkins and Sartain are in the front of the police car, and uh, Allison is in the back, and they tell Allison to keep an eye out because 
all of this has happened very soon. They say he can't be far. He's got to be around. And they do, in fact, find him, which led mm. up to – I don't know. This scene just really surprised me. Mm. I, I didn't see it coming, I guess. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? I know what you're talking about. This is when they they come up upon Michael Myers. He's in the road, and they run, and uh, he gets hit, right? Yeah, Hawkins runs him down with the car. So he's down, and so he is on the ground, and uh, Hawkins gets out with his gun and uh, goes over to check on him, and it appears that he is going to kill him? Well, the, the, the doctor runs up to him and... The doctor's there first. Yeah. The doctor runs up to him and says, he's dead. Mm-hmm. And Hawkins says, I don't care. I'm going to blow his brains out anyway, which <laughs> so smart. You know, like, <laughs> if only more people in horror movies would do this, the movies would be so much shorter. <laughs> but Sartain pulls out what looks like a pen out of his uh, shirt pocket and pulls out a knife and stabs Hawkins in the neck and kills him. And I didn't... Sartain has (sighs) seemed a little bit unhinged, like he's... He's obsessed. He's clearly obsessed with Michael. He has Michael. a clinical like detachment wants... with what's going on because of his obsession right. with Michael. Yeah. He even he he had said at some point that he just wishes that he knew what it felt like, you know, to to be in Michael's head or or how these events, the events that have happened, how they've affected Michael and turned him into what he is. And he's so obsessed with it that he kills Hawkins and then he puts on Hawkins's coat and he puts on Michael's mask for a minute, almost like he just kind of wants to be in his head. And he picks up Michael and puts him in the back seat with Allison, which <laughs> it's a cop car. So they're stuck back there. Yeah. She can't get out. And Sartain starts driving apparently towards Lori's house and says, I've never seen Michael in the wild. I, I want to observe him in his natural habitat. So it's like he's going to take Michael to Lori and release him there. But before they get there, Michael wakes up, puts the mask back on because Sartain had thrown it in the floorboard of the backseat of the car. Allison gets Sartain to stop by saying, he talked to me. I saw him earlier and he talked to me. And Sartain says, what did he say? And she says, just one word. And if you if you pull over and let me go, I'll tell you. And he 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 does pull over, and he's asking her, but not letting her out. And they're kind of screaming at one another when Michael wakes up, puts his mask back on, and then busts the cage forward and gets out, pulls Sartain out of the car. Allison gets out of the car and starts running to <laughs> through the woods. I don't even know if she knows where she's going. She ends up at Lori's house eventually. And then uh, Sartain is laying on the ground and says to Michael, just say something. And Michael just looks at him and then picks up his foot and curb stomps him and <laughs> smashes his whole head. Smashes his <laughs> head with his foot. <laughs> and there's brains everywhere. <laughs> It, you know, you asked me what I thought of it. To be honest, I think earlier I said I could find no fault with this movie. I, I'm going to take that back. This, this bit struck me as a little contrived and overly dramatic. I I don't know. I, of course it could happen, right? There's this doctor. He's obsessed with a patient, and he himself might become a little unhinged at some point. Maybe the idea is that Michael has had some kind of influence over him as well, and so he's turned him evil, or maybe the evil's catching and spreading. I don't know. I felt like it was a contrived plot device to keep the movie going. I I don't really feel like a doctor is uh, even an unhinged... I don't know. Of course he's supposed to be unhinged, you know, but like a doctor's not gonna... He'd have to be the... He'd basically have to be a criminal to... He couldn't be as old as this guy is, as much as he studied Michael and all this, to think that he's just gonna murder others so that he can have the opportunity to uh, set Michael free. And I guess the implication is that he set him free by somehow causing the car accident in the first place? I think so. There's nothing, but I'm not sure. There's never anything clear about it, but I mean, he is, oddly enough, the only one alive right. in that van, and uh, you do kind of wonder why everybody else is dead and, and he seems to be a alive and kicking so yeah i i wasn't a huge fan of this twist and as soon as he died you know i forgot about it and because <laughs> because it right. gets us to where we need to be anyway right which is the big face-off between michael and Lori, right. which is what we're all going for yeah i thought i thought it was kind of stupid too but to be fair 
throughout the franchise, Dr. Loomis did some pretty questionable things too. Um, Loomis in some of the sequels would intentionally put innocent people in danger to try to lure Michael places or to get Michael to do certain things. Mm. Um, I don't think that he ever killed anybody or intended to kill anybody, but he definitely did some questionable things. So there are still shades of Donald Pleasance's Loomis here. Donald Pleasance also has um, presence in the movie. There's, there's sketches of him. There's voice recordings of him. He passed away before he was in part five, I think it was, and he was in it, but then it, or maybe it was six. I don't remember, but it was (laughs) one of the ones that went, it went through so many reshoots and, and script changes that if you watch the theatrical release, it doesn't even really make any sense. There's a producer's cut that supposedly makes more sense, but I've never seen it. Anyway, you're right. Getting to the good part, the big showdown. The cops saw some of this, like, all of this happened just down the street from Lori's house, and there were two guards posted there, and they saw kind of something going on, but they weren't sure what it was. So they pull up there kind of in the aftermath, and we don't see what happens. All we see next is the cop car pulls up in front of Lori's house, and Allison's dad goes out to ask them if there's any updates on where Allison is and he opens the door and the cops are both dead in the car. One of them is sitting in the driver's seat. The other one has the other cop's head in his lap and Michael Mm. has made it into a (laughs) jack-o'-lantern. He's hollowed it out and put some kind of light inside it so that it's it's a human head jack-o'-lantern. He clearly, he had had some time on his hands. He's a more creative person than we've ever given him credit for. So, you know. (laughs) He wanted to set up a nice little scene and um, and then I knew this was coming. It still makes me kind of sad. The the dad gets killed. Michael strangles him for a while and then breaks his neck. I figured it was going to happen. Mm. It made me it made me sad because I felt bad for Karen and Allison. But I think that it's also in keeping because, like I said, now Karen and Allison maybe will understand mm. why Lori is, is the way that she has been. They'll appreciate her more. Right. You should learn to They'll appreciate your grandmother more. <laughs> it'll bring them Maybe this will do It'll it. bring them closer together. <laughs> Michael then Lori is standing by the front door like waiting for Michael to arrive and he busts his arms through the glass of the door and gets a hold of her head and her throat and they struggle for a while and it mm. really looks like he's going to get the better of her. It does. But she ends up, she's got a, a rifle and they struggle with it for a while and then she's able to fire it and it blows off like three of the fingers on one of his hands and she's able to get away so she turns on all of her floodlights and she and karen go down into that secret basement michael is in the house Lori shoots up through the floorboards and it sounds like she got him so she says i have to finish this and she goes up and she goes looking for him all over the house and she thinks that he's in the closet much like she had hid in the closet but he's not, and she <laughs> is, like, sealing off rooms one by one. Like, she's got, like, these amazing metal, like, rolling trap doors that come it's down smart. and lock. It's smart. Yeah. <laughs> she ends up in the dummy room. Like, she's got a shooting range <laughs> on her house where she does target practice with dummies, and apparently she stores them in one of the rooms in her house. And it's really <laughs> creepy. And he ends up jumping out at her, and they struggle. I think she gets stabbed a little bit. And mm-hmm. then he throws her out the window just as he was thrown out the window in the first movie. And it's a total throwback. Yeah. He looks and she's there. Then Allison comes in the house and he hears that. So he looks away. And when he looks back, she's gone. <laughs> Karen hears Allison. So she gets her down in the basement with her. And then Michael is – he heard them i guess and so he um is messing with the island and eventually he rips it off and this is my favorite part of the movie Mm. um karen is down there and she looks at the arsenal of her mom's guns and she grabs one that has her initials carved into it so obviously this was her gun from when she was a child and she's standing there and she pushes allison off to the side and when michael throws away the island 
she screams for her mom and she's crying and she's saying, mom, mom, I need you help. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I can't do it. And she's crying and she's so distraught. And then Michael steps into the stairwell and immediately her entire demeanor changes. She gets very serious and she just goes, gotcha. And she shoots him. (laughs) And I don't remember. I think she got him in maybe the shoulder or maybe she grazed his head. I don't remember. But that was one of my favorite fake out scenes in any movie ever. And I thought Judy <laughs> Greer played it so great. And it was so satisfying that, was. you know, she, she hit it. She lured him into range by playing vulnerable. And as it turns out, she's not vulnerable because her mother prepared her. And I mm. love it. <laughs> it was great. And it faked me out too. <laughs> yeah, me too. It was it was great. He falls into the basement. I think that he grabs out at her again. And Lori's there. Lori stabs him from behind, which causes him to fall into the bait. Oh, that's it. He gets knocked in there. Grabs Karen's leg. Yes, and tries to pull her back down. But Allison grabs the big kitchen knife and slashes at him, slashes his his hand, and he lets go. And they pull Karen out, and Lori hits a button, and these huge, like, swords or spikes shoot across the entrance. And Karen says to Allison, I know you thought that was a cage, because uh, Lori had said something similar to Karen earlier. I know you thought that this was my cage. And then when they had been down there, Karen was freak or Allison was freaking out saying, oh, we're trapped in a cage. And then Allison says, or Karen says, it's not a cage. It's a trap. So like <laughs> Lori has had this plan forever and they are, and they executed, executed. it. And, th- and then Lori flips some other switches and gas starts shooting out from all these various vents and hoses she lights a flare and throws it down in the basement. The gas ignites and Michael just stands there and looks up at them as the flames surround him. Mm. And it's just such a cool character thing. Like we talked about how he's pretty much unfazed, you know, when he gets shot or when he gets injured. And in this part, when he's in imminent peril, it's almost as though he's still unfazed. There's nothing he can do. He's trapped down there, and he just stands there and looks at them. And they run out, and Allison flags down a truck, and the last scene that we see is them in the bed of the truck, the three strode women, um, all of them having had to face up against Michael at this point, just sitting, you know, quietly in the back of the truck as it drives away, and that's the end. And the trailer for the next one, Halloween Kills, is out, and it looks like it picks up exactly where it le- leaves off here. Um, you see them in the back of the truck, and then you see a fire truck fly by, and you hear Lori scream, No, let him burn! Let him burn! Oh. And that's kind of all you see. That's kind of all you see in the trailer. Um, but John Carpenter, when this movie came out, said definitively this is going to be the last Michael Myers Halloween movie. Even though... the filmmakers were contractually obligated to option a sequel. Initially, they had planned to shoot two movies back-to-back, but they said, you know what, let's take it slow. Let's do this first one and learn from it and then see if we want to move forward. Well, by the time it was finished, the sequel was already greenlit and they greenlit two additional sequels. So Halloween Kills has already filmed. It's complete. I don't think it's going to come out until 2021 sometime because of the pandemic, but it's done. And they still plan to do Halloween Ends, which I really hope they get to do. (laughs) It makes me a little nervous. Jamie Lee Curtis is not a spring chicken. I think that she's in perfect health, but, you know, you never know. Um, so I hope they get to finish it out because I so enjoyed this movie. I'm looking forward to the next one. I just feel like they really kind of caught lightning in a bottle 
with this. Yeah. Uh, it just turned out so well. I'm totally with you on that. I feel like, uh, yeah, except for that little bit in there, really the rest of the movie, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really into it. And it really gave me a new appreciation for the character. I thought it really rounded out Laurie's character very yeah. well. And it made me so interested to see what these next two generation of women are going to be right. facing in these, knowing that there are two more movies coming. I thought it was great they all got a stab in or a gunshot yeah, yeah. in at him at the end. You know, it was very apropos. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm becoming a new fan of the franchise simply because of this film. I saw... Uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, and uh, it got tiresome. I felt like it went yeah. on really long and was just violence for the sake of violence. And, yep, and yep. Mm-hmm. after a while, I was just kind of bored. <laughs> so uh, this does, I think, exactly what it set out to do and put a proper sequel onto the original that extends the story in a way that's going to be a little more sophisticated you know, going forward and really interesting. The kind of thing you can only do, you know, what is it, 40 years later? 40 uh, years later. Oh, God. <laughs> You're right. Hopefully everyone's going to stay alive. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. To finish it out. At this point, I don't even know how many Halloween movies there are. I think 10, 11, 12, something like that. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, this, uh, and, and Jamie Lee Curtis said that she thinks that this movie lives up to the original. And, and I agree with her. Me too. <sighs> so anyway, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we talked about it. And I think it's perfect for the Halloween, Halloween. season. Totally puts me in the Halloween spirit. <laughs> so happy Halloween, loyal listeners. Uh, we thank you for sticking with us for all these years. And uh, I don't think we have any plans of slowing down anytime soon. So thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and you haven't already listened to our back episodes, uh, there's a whole catalog of back episodes that you can access. We're, you can find us pretty much anywhere you can find um, podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, all over the place. You can uh, Google us, Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast. You can find our webpage and our Facebook page where we have a lot of fun interacting with you. You can leave us a post on the page or you can PM us. And we do everything that we can to get back to everybody. And if you have any requests, we will certainly add them to the list. Until next time, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Ah.